2: Everywhere we go, people want
3: to know Hello everyone, my name is Rebecca Kelly And you're listening to the Everywhere We Go podcast On this week's episode, I sit down with Peggy Who is a wife, a sister, a mother and a grandmother Peggy talks about growing up in the 60s and 70s Childhood responsibility, being Irish in London And the loss of a sibling through suicide Scary convents and getting the legs walloped off you there was nothing like growing up in the 60s and 70s, unless there was. Everywhere we go, people want to know who we are and where do we come from. So who are you and where do you come from? And
2: my name is Peggy. My official name is Margaret. I come from Artane. Amari Konya Peg. Yeah, you're OK. That's the name everybody knows me
3: by, except for my posh, friends. <laughs> posh yes. friends. By Margaret. I just want to start from the start. So when were you born and where? Well, OK, I was born in
2: 1900 and black Blah, blah. <laughs> now, I don't ever give the year I was born because I was told once by somebody, don't ever tell anybody your age when you go over a certain age. I, I know I was born in Pear Street. Now, I know I was born in Hollistree Street Hospital. My earliest memories are of living in Crumlin on Windmill Road. And I remember, it's so strange when I think back on it now, I always thought we just all lived in one room. But as a child, I can't remember pets. <laughs> (laughs) for some reason. We probably had bedrooms but I do remember just one big room and a little cupboard where we got cold, the fire, and the cold was always getting shoveled shoveled in inside there. Things like that now I remember but I can't go really that far back because I've just got to a stage in my life where sometimes I can't even remember yesterday. But there's certain moments in my life yeah, I can remember. Talk
3: about that so you were originally a Southsider so what took you over
2: to the north side
3: we moved from
2: we moved from Crumlin to Churchtown Um, I suppose in the days when we were just a little bit posh Um, no that's a joke really Uh, I went, I don't know what the reasons were behind it I think because as our family increased we just went to a bigger house and in Churchtown we did have a bigger house, it was three bedrooms and it was actually lovely, it was quiet, it was Southside. My mum always wanted to be Southside, but my dad was from Eastwall, and uh, she ended up marrying a Northsider. She always said she should have stayed on the Southside. That's how we ended up there, and I went to school in Rathfarnham. I went to Loretto College, and um, for some reason, when I was around, I think, 12 or 13, um, my dad, I don't know what had happened, but we were shipped. Off to the north side and I stayed in Raffarnham School and the teacher from Clontarf would pick me up on a cluster church so I continued my schooling right up to I finished off all my exams and um, so I was very quite intelligent in those days I actually won um, a competition for the whole of Ireland at the time as to I'm not very religious now but I do right. believe in God but We had to write an essay for how we'd feel if Jesus was to come again and I wrote an essay for which went all over Ireland and I ended up getting a lovely missal from the Bishop of Ireland at the time who signed it and my name was written in Irish it was all in gold and I wish I had it now because I really don't know what happened and I remember the nun coming down to the house and saying to my mum she's going to be a great writer one day encourager. and my mom said to me don't get any fancy notions about yourself you're just going to end up like me with a gang of kids and married so I never got any fancy notions about myself and hence I ended up with five kids married and I never became a famous writer well I've done a little bit but I've never became what I should have become if I had have stuck to what I was aspiring to at the time so just take it back slightly to that story you wrote do you remember what you wrote Um, I remember I had a really vivid imagination because as a child I always saw angels and this is something that people don't believe in but I always saw angels. So I always had a firm belief in angels and in the spiritual. I believed the Bible. I was fascinated by the Bible as a child for some reason because we had a big family Bible which had loads of pictures in it which for a child pictures are the one thing that draw you in and the pictures in it to me were, were just brilliant because they were shown like the temple, Samson and Delilah all those type of things, the temple coming down, Samson with his long hair and Moses and that, so that's how I kind of became really fascinated about Jesus at the time I was quite a holy child but at the time um, we didn't really have much choice because we kind of had to get confession every Saturday and we had to go to mass every Sunday, even no, we didn't have any sins. Well, I the story I wrote was probably I actually thought that Jesus was a really good man. I elaborated on how I would feel if I was to sit beside him and the feeling I would get and that he would be surrounded by angels when he came, which I knew when he had come that it wasn't really like that. So I always felt protected as a
3: child. And Camille, for your teacher to put that trust in, not tr- trust is the wrong word but actually to put her, maybe her fate knew that she thought you were going to do very well that she was picking you up from Clester and bringing you over to Loretta's as well that's unbelievable she was just a
2: teacher who who ha- who happened to walk in the school and I do remember at the time now we were probably because we came from Raffernum I always thought I was a little bit better than everybody else it took me years to realise I wasn't but um, I remember at the time because we had moved to the north side and the north side and Truntar it was quite posh then, yeah. which it still is today. I always remember because I had moved to Artane, this teacher, her two daughters travelled in the car and they would kind of look their nose down at me and I didn't feel they were any better than me because I felt I was better than where I had moved to, yeah, yeah. which at the end of the day I wasn't because, uh, you know, moving from the south side to the north side, I know it's going to seem strange but I actually never heard the word F oh. till I moved to the north I I never heard it. Um, The only words we ever heard from was was feck. You know, that's all my dad ever would say was feckin' this or that. But we never heard the F word. And all of a sudden, it was like someone was after throwing me into the Wild West. (laughs) because (laughs) I obviously must have been very full of myself and uh, I I think I used to walk by some of the girls who lived on the road and listen to the language and say oh my God beam me up you know but um, no it did take me years I I
3: say F quite a lot now just going back to the God piece have you taken that through your life or have you lost that faith a little bit no I've never lost my faith I I
2: can't say that I'm a good church goer I feel like I allowed um, my own family, my own children, to make up their own minds when they got to teenage years, what they did. Um, the church kind of terrified me as a child, because when we lived in Rathfarnham we had one particular priest and uh, he he was a famous artist at the time. I won't say his name, because, but he's more than likely well gone by now. But if you walked into the church as a child and you saw he was the only priest in the confession box, you literally you were terrified because you knew you were going to spend about an hour on your knees and literally we had no sins on our soul like you know you had to go in and make up your sins like I gave my mom and dad cheek or I told a lie and I don't remember really telling lies because the one thing I have a phobia about is lies I, I hate lies I absolutely hate them. and uh, he seemed to be always the one priest that was there and he'd give you about 20 Hail Marys and 20 Hail Fathers for nothing every Every child in the parish was terrified of him, but I do have a really strong belief in our Lord. Well, I go to bed every night and I say a prayer to the Sacred Heart to protect my kids, to protect me, protect the family. Um, but I do—I've kept—I've kept that faith all through the years, and I do believe that I do have a guardian angel.
3: So, Peg, if we were to go back, you said there um, at the start that you moved to a bigger house because the family grew. So how many brothers and sisters do you have? I had five
2: brothers and four sisters. We were a family of ten. Um, I was the oldest girl. So there was I think about a year and five months between every one of us. So my mom really had a pretty tough life.
3: So Peggy, I am an only girl. So what was it like for you growing up with all those girls in the house?
2: Oh, I have to say now, um, I don't really, going back on my childhood right now, I had the sister who was next to me was sick as a child so she kind of spent a year in hospital, she had TB and um, I kind of felt like uh, because my mum was only allowed to go up and see her once a month and nobody was allowed to go and see her, they were just terrible days. It was kind of tough because being the oldest girl you were kind of given more responsibilities and because the sister who came after me was sick she, she would have had kind of a need Easier life, and then my other sister had a fairly easy life too because she would be in and out of hospital with. I think she suffered with her kidneys. And then my two younger sisters were. I was kind of like the mammy of the family, so I learned how to cook fairly young, and I learned how to clean very young. You know how to get down on my knees and polish floors and wash floors. And the one thing I don't do today, and I always swore as a child I will never do it, is iron a shirt for a man that is one thing I totally refused to do because I had to iron shirts for my five brothers at the time my, that was my job was ironing and I hated blinking shirts I actually hated doing the collars and then buttoning them up and I swore when I grow up and get married if I get married I will never iron a shirt again and believe you me I never have when did you realise that your
3: childhood was kind of over.
2: This is strange saying I don't even remember having a childhood if you could yeah I think because I was always being held responsible and my dad God rest his soul is gone now but my dad with me was very tough and I kind of remember I never I didn't have a a great childhood with my dad as in as in he was he was tougher with me than with the other girls. I don't know whether it was because because I was the oldest daughter. Um, me and my older brother would spend a lot of time down in his dad's house, who was my granddad who lived in Eastwall and um, ended up that my older brother spent probably the first eight years of his life nearly staying there because they just wanted to kind of hold on to him. Um, I came home and um, it's very strange things I remember about being in Eastwall. Um, the one thing I liked about being there was we always got fried egg and fried bread. <laughs> That's the one thing I liked. That was with my aunt lived there, my uncle lived there and my granddad and my granny who I absolutely loved. She was my granny on um, my dad's side and even though I don't remember a whole lot about my childhood, I always remember my granny Moore because she was a I always remember her being a real lady. She always had her hair in a bone and she was tall, she was always was real gentle and I knew she loved me you know I knew my mom loved me but because my mom had so many kids you know we just we, we couldn't you, you, you can't feel your love when you have like a load of kids and it was really tough for the women in those days and I only realised it today but as a child you don't realise it so you kind of feel that you're left out if you don't get all the love that you think you should get or that I would have given to my kid in this generation now that was the one thing I always made my kids feel that they were always loved
3: did that make you in your teenage
2: years rebel against your parents um, no not against no I never rebelled against my mother I yeah. took up from my mother quite a lot uh, my dad was the old Irish man yeah. like, who was fond of his uh, few pints so me and him would fight quite a lot probably because I was the oldest girl and I would take up from my mom no there was never any there was never any violence in my house but you know when there would, there would be arguments as regards like probably a few drinks on them but I was always the one who would come up against my dad you know my mom wouldn't come up against him the way I would I was the one who did all the like the wallpapering in the house and I was always very handy and my dad would come in with a few drinks on him and start picking at it and saying oh this wasn't matched to that this flower is not matching and I would turn savage on my dad I was terrible wildcat (laughs) yeah When when I turned about 16 Seventeen, and yeah, I became kind of I stood up for myself. I'd never really stood up for myself as a child so when I turned 60 and 70 and I really, I kind of really stood up for myself. And at that stage then we were living on the north side and I my first job when I left school was I went straight to work for Easton's as a bookkeeper. and uh, which today I would have been a fully qualified accountant. So I was working for Easton's for about nine months and then I realised that my sister who was probably only a about fifteen uh, was earning more money than me as a, at sewing. So I decided to leave my good bookkeeping job to go sewing. And I couldn't sew, but I actually did stay sewing for years. I stayed sewing right up to the time I went to live in London. I went to live in London when I was twenty-two, and I was actually working for a company, Lee Marks, in Ballyfermot, and um, went out with the boss's son. Would you believe? that No. And that was good and then I left there so I I could have been an accountant today if I had a stuck I never really had any ambitions and I'm sorry I didn't because I had so much going on in my head that I should have used it like all the girls I worked with used to get me to write their Valentine cards and get to write all their poems and that on them and one particular friend of mine who now lives in London she married uh, an English fella and he used to write her letters and I used to answer all his letters and as he said to me it was was you I fell in love with (laughs) it was was all the letters that made me fall in love with her we have a laugh about now she said to to him I never wrote you a letter she used to write all the letters I used to write lovely romantic letters back to him you know because she said to me here answer that letter you know so things like that like I did throw talent I had away I had a little bit of success though at writing at one stage in my life
3: and tell me this talking about um, your wild days as a teenager so you and your sisters 12 of us would go out
2: in a crowd Um, well my sister who was younger than me got married quite young she got married I think she was 18 or 19 I was very very fickle so I went to fellas like I don't know what Um, had a few marriage proposals and the things with my dad was he used to say to me oh jeez if you were good looking you'd be dangerous I, my friend used to think I was fain because I would put on I wouldn't go out without eyeshadow and mascara on me and a bit of lipstick yeah. and she used to think it was vanity and it wasn't it was because I didn't like the face that I had because my dad would say things like to me oh your sister's going to take all your fellas off you and you know you're not going to have any look." so as a result I went through fellas just to prove to my dad I can do it. And uh, so I did turn a little bit wild at around 18, 19. And the nightclub at the time was Sloopies. Yeah. And I would say 50% of the time, I would end up asleep in the <laughs> in the girls' cloakroom with my head down on the on the bench. But um, my sisters used to say, I'll just leave her. She's grand. And I was always grand. Gangs of us used to go out and I was into, we were coming then into the real history hippie days yeah. uh, well, we were kind of in the hippie days now believe you me in the hippie days never touched a drug in my life never had a joint <laughs> there was a lot of people smoking joints then uh, the, my only vice was drinking I never touched a cigarette either but the green dolphin was great because there was a great crowd and you know it was where my brother ended up with his his wife um, my other brother ended up with her sister we were all always drinking together and I wore all the maxi clothes where my sisters wore the hot pants and the minis and my dad used to say to me, You look like a gypsy. I didn't care. I actually fell down the stairs one night, I was so drunk and <laughs> went to Sloopies and danced for the whole night. And the following day I couldn't even put my foot to the floor. Ended up in Jervis Street Hospital with all the ligaments of my foot torn. And the doctor said to me, You danced all night on this foot. <laughs> I said, Yes. <laughs> the days when I could drink and I can't drink anymore. It's terrible, I'd love to get drunk. <laughs> oh no, I'd actually love it now. I would just love to go back to the days when I, you know, I did silly things like take off my shoes and stand up on tables and sing songs and things like that, you know. I did go to London when I was, I think I was 22 when I went and Marion came over to stay with me for a while and I remember at the time I think uh, I was coming, I was 21 and I remember I just wanted, um kind of wanted to break away, you know I, I kind of felt I'd been like a mammy most of my life I felt like I'd always cooped cleaned, being a mammy and then a girl I worked with in Lee uh, we were talking chatting away one day and she said to me oh I'd love to go to London and I said to her um, she said would you come with me and I just said yeah why not like they were days when you could do things like that and I remember going home and saying to my mom and dad I'm going to London and my dad said to me go to London and don't come back you know <laughs> because you just didn't leave your home then how did you get there for no reason yeah, we actually went there by boat to London I think I left about four weeks after I said it um, and I went to stay with a friend of mine who uh, had who was married yeah. by then my friend from East Wall was married and she put us up for a week and then we got um, a kind of in an, an apartment in a house where we had the middle floor in the house there was like a a bedroom, a sitting room the days when you could get apartments yeah. and we had to share a kitchen and a bathroom with the other tenants. There was a French couple overhead and there was a Greek couple underneath us and it was right in the heart of London it was the Essex Road um, it was actually Ockenden Road which was off the Essex Road and when we arrived there I remember being in a taxi and the thing in my day was we're Irish fellas, you could chase them for so Long that by the time they realised they fancied you, you were gone off them. And then arriving in London was a whole new ball game because we were asking this taxi driver where to go to and he said, oh go to this pub called the Blind Beggar which was in Whitechapel which if anybody is familiar with the Blind Beggar it was where the Cray twins were in the old days. Now they weren't in my day but they were in the old days before that and it was a really East End pub. So we were like two lambs to the slaughterhouse Daughter, we were really innocent. I had me long blonde hair and me maxis and I was like a little rake. I was about seven stone and uh, my friend used to wear a mini and our long boots and she was lovely looking. She was there. So we stopped at this pub and we walked in and as we walked in the door, there was music playing. There was a DJ and there was the music was blurred in the pub. And by the time we reached the counter, I had five fellas standing around me wanting to buy me a drink and I said, this, is, this it's a joke and they were all saying buy a drink love you know and I was going no 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 thanks I said oh my god this is different Ireland and uh, they thought I was Swedish and they thought Jean was American and they thought all Irish girls had red hair and green eyes they couldn't believe that you could get an Irish girl who was blonde with blue eyes <laughs> that was a, a massive shock to the English then and that was how my life started there and while I was there and I think the, the owner of the pub so I was quite popular not being a big head offered me a job he said would you like a job as a barmaid and I said well I've never actually done that and he said oh you go down a tree here so within, within the following week I started working in the pool and then we got a job working for a company that was kind of related to Twinlock it was a plastics company and my husband the guy I'm married to now my husband Barry actually worked in that place and when we walked in I looked at him and and I thought he was the image of every picture I've ever, I'd ever seen. Oh, Jesus Christ. I know, this is a terrible thing. He had long hair. He had long, the long tash. And I looked at him and I said, oh my God, he's the image of every picture we have of our Lord at home. And he gave me a wink and his friend gave my friend a wink. And uh, I thought, oh, he's lovely, here. Yes. You know, he's really nice. So, and he, and he was really, and I have to say, he was really nice then. He's still nice. What was it like being Irish? Well, at that time, all the the troubles were going on in the North and being Irish working in an East End pub, but when I started working in the pub, I was very popular. A lot of people liked the Irish and I have to say the one thing about the East End people, if they like you, they love you and if they don't like you, they don't like you. So because of the troubles between our the Irish and the, the English at the time, if I was speaking to somebody some of them would say, are you effing Irish? You know, what are you doing working in an East End pub? But because the patrons who went into the pub liked me so much, I was very well protected. You know, no, nothing would ever happen to me. I actually started going out with the DJ out the pub. And, oh no, I was a floozy. <laughs> no, I was going out with the DJ for a while. And the owner of the pub was very fond of me. So I was quite safe. Um, because the East Enders are, they really do look after you, if they like you yeah, if they like you but I did put up with a lot of stick as soon as I would start talking and then Marion came over to me as well she stayed with me for a little while and um he had, my friend was was going with uh, an English fella at the time a fella she'd met over there and um she was very very possessive of him and I remember Marion coming over, staying with me and I asked my friend's fella, Jimmy, who was very fond of me but not as in a romantic way him and Jean were together and they were constantly breaking up and he'd say uh, he called me Maggie and he'd say Maggie the only reason I'm getting back in murder is because of you because I know you have to put up with her and I remember Marion coming over and me saying to Jimmy Will you just look after my sister and make sure she's safe because I was working behind the bar and it was very hard for me to keep an eye on her yeah. so Jimmy of course went all out to make Marion make sure she was safe and then next thing my friend says to me give me my jacket from behind the counter I'm going home you know she was showing a little bit of the green imp was sitting on her shoulder and I said to her stop Jimmy's only looking after Marion for me and I have to say Marion played the part very well I mean when Marion knew she was causing trouble yeah. she went in like a soldier you know I'll take you on you yeah. know you're okay so Marion would, would play along with it and my friend stomped out of the pub. Now I was living with her and Marion was staying with us. So she stomped out of the pub and next thing all I could hear was this this big commotion outside and a couple of the guys ran back in and said, oh Maggie, you'd want to come out. Your sister's lying on the ground. Her nose is bust. And I said, oh jeez, what's after happening? So I went out and Marion of course had a few drinks on her so she wasn't feeling it then. And she was lying on the ground and her nose was all split open. And my friend was saying I'm sorry I'm sorry she was she was in a state because apparently Marion had gone out to say oh just it's, it's okay just just hang on don't go you're being silly yeah. and she just pushed her but when she pushed her she pushed her up against the wall and Marion's face went into the wall and we were across the road from the London hospital and I had to take the night off work, bring Marion over they had to strap her into a bed to stop her from killing my friend and my friend came into the hospital saying, I want to see my friend, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry and she was she was crying because she'd kinda of sobered up a little yeah. bit and Marion of course was gonna kill her and she ended up looking like
3: Catwoman because the following day <laughs> her nose was all over her face and she oh. two black eyes and Oh my god she'd never tell me that um and tell me about Barry.
2: Well, he asked my friend out first, as they, they do, and then decided after about three weeks, it was actually me he fancied. My brother, who had gone to England when he was kind of 17, um, had gone, I could say he'd gone missing the year before I went away. And my mother was writing to every organisation in England saying, could they find him? Because we'd got one letter back saying, um, not known at this dress. And when my sister had her first child, my mother let him know. And um, how I ended up with my husband, this is is very relevant to my brother. He was troubled as in he had a very split personality, which in those days you wouldn't have known. We kind of knew, like one minute he'd say to you, oh, you look lovely today. And then five minutes later he'd say, what are you looking at, you ugly bitch? So it was things like that that we put up with, so he was very troubled anyway when he went to England I happened before I went to England I had been gone with an English guy who was a pen friend of mine and the last time I saw my brother I was going over to meet this fella's parents and um, my brother said to me the, my last memories of my brother was as I was leaving the house I said to him what are English people like because I'd never been to England and he said to me just go to England and be yourself, he said. You're my sister. You're beautiful. And he said, they're going to all love you. And he grabbed a hold of me and we never showed affection in those days. Not like today we're all real huggy yeah. with each other. Years ago we didn't have all that kind of affection. And I remember he grabbed a hold of my face and he kissed me on the lips and I pushed him away. And I used get away with that. Then I went over to this fella's place. I wasn't in love. He asked me to marry him. I was just I was very, very fickle. And then when I came home from England, my man Said to me, George was my brother. He's gone. He's gone again. And I said, What happened? And she said, We had a fight over you. Over you. You had never being able to make up your mind. And about how nice this guy was, and how things were going to work out with him. And we had an argument, and he packed his bags and he went. And uh, then he wrote to me then that year, and he said, Well, are you going to get married to uh, Sid? And he said, Because I'm tired sleeping on park benches. Ha ha. And I wrote back and I said, no. I said, I'm not going to get married because I really, really like him, but I don't love him. And he wrote back to me and he said, Peg, one day someone's going to hurt you really bad. And he said, I hope it never happens to you. He said, because he was one nice, really nice thing. And that was the last time I heard from him. I got a Bertie card from him. And he said, tell my mom that sometimes what comes out of my mouth is not what's in my heart and I, I kept that card for ages until like I had the attic converted in my house I don't know what happened to it it's probably still in my house somewhere and then when I went to London my mum used to say to me watch out and see the bump into him in the street but every second fella I met looked like him and it, it was stupid because I always thought he was George. He was like he was good looking he always had this kind of lost lost look lost about him and like when I'd be walking walking through London there's so many lost people in London that everybody I'd bump into I'd say is that him you know thinking that I'm going to find him now for me, ma'am, and I'm going to make everything okay for her I'm going to make everything right and then how I ended up with Barry was I had actually gone to see the movie A Clockwork Orange and um, I don't know if anybody will remember that movie yeah, it was yeah in those days it was kind of a, yes. a really over movie to see and I had gone out with did this jockey out of the pub to see it and my dad had followed me over a few weeks previous with a friend of his and he stayed in the hotel and i said what's what's what are you doing over here and he said oh, i thought i'd come over and check up on you he said it was only when you were gone i realized just how much I was going to miss it like he never actually said he loved me but I kind of knew yeah. then and then he went back the day I found out about my brother did commit committed suicide in England which we didn't know about and my mom was writing to the Samaritans and she was writing to a radio show over there and the radio show would put out George if you're there will you contact your mom back in Dublin and then that day I went to see a clockwork orange my dad had gone back back to Dublin and as I was walking down the Ockenden Road my vivid memory was I said goodbye to also another Barry who was working in the pub said goodbye to him got off the tube at Whitechapel in London walked from there and as I walked up towards the apartment I was in I saw my dad standing at the front of it and I said what's my dad doing back here and he says to me you get in there he said you're up to the same shenanigans over here that you were in Dublin he said, you have a fella sitting in there waiting for you. And when I walked in, there was Barry, who I'm now married to, sitting there in the chair, and I gave him a dirty look. And in the other chair, because it was a huge big room, my mum was sitting there, and I threw my arms around her. I said, "Mom!" And uh, Barry was still sitting there, and she said, this fella called down to see you. And she said, we found out about your art. And she started to cry, and I said, is he in prison? Did you find Because that was my first talk. Oh, he's locked up or something and my mum said no, she said he's dead and with that Barry who I'm married to now jumped up and he said can I make everybody a cup of tea so he went out and he didn't know what to say because he was constantly turning up and you know I wasn't going out with him. and he just, he got that embarrassed, he just kind of said oh I'll make everybody tea or coffee or whatever and uh, my mum was in floods and I was in floods and I said when did you find out and she said to me he's been dead a year and um she said but I I have no idea where to go to find out anything. And I said, Mom, I'm not even here long enough to know. I didn't know how you went about where he died, how you went to a hospital, to a coroner's office or wherever. And Barry said, Oh, don't worry. I'll take two weeks off work. I'll bring you everywhere. And that's how I... He became his rock. Like, he, t- he just took all that time off and he brought her everywhere. He brought her to the hospital that George was taken to, brought her to the last place that he lived we went to the coroner's office she couldn't get any records off the hospital because they said they were all private now I mean that was something I couldn't understand because when you lose your child you're entitled to know you know why what your, what your child was attending the hospital for but I would say that he had been attending the hospital with his mind maybe Please. you know, I think that was the first major shock in uh, in. Our lives. Well in my life that was a major shock because me and him would probably have been closer than because we were like only a year and I think four months between us and I spent like the first maybe five or six years of my life down in Eastwall with him. We would have been closer so was it, really. it was a really it was a shock to find out. That was the first big trauma in our lives. And to just find out what happened to him? Yeah found out that about a month before he had died He'd kind of taken a little bit of a breakdown. Um, He, the landlady from the, we found out where he lived Mm -hmm. and my mom went and had a talk with her. And she was saying that about a month before he died, he'd taken, um, he'd thrown all his stuff out through the bedroom window. Mm -hmm. He'd cut up all his clothes. He had all, her whole garden was scattered with photographs that were all in tiny little pieces probably all air photographs, letters, whatever. She knew absolutely nothing about him, that she could have traced anybody. And um, she got a local priest to come in and see him. And uh, he went in, he talked to him, and he said, no, he seems fine. He said, like, I think he just went through a little bit of a, a crisis, but he had shaved off all his hair. So, which was strange, because he was, he, oh, he, he had blondish hair. And he, like, he had he, good hair. At the time, where he shaved it all off, and then the night before, like Friday the thirteenth, which I'm still superstitious about, was the day he died. On the, the like that had happened to him a few weeks previous, mm. and on the day before he died, mm. he actually wrote her a letter and he put it under her door. And he had written to her, mm, "Dear Diane," her name was. Um, I'm slowly losing my mind. I have nobody in the world to turn to. I've nobody to talk to and I've nobody to help me. Please help me. So she didn't get the letter till she arrived home from work. And her boyfriend was a policeman. She asked him, would he go up and talk to him? And he went up and he kept knocking on the door. And he said he knew he was in because he could hear music on, but he wouldn't answer the door to him. So he said, we're best just leaving him alone and maybe talk to him tomorrow. And she said the following day, he came down the stairs and he says, good morning, Uh, Is like as normal as anything and she said to him George I got your letter and I was going I was going to talk to you last night and he said what letter I didn't write you a letter and she said you did I have it there he said no that's not my letter I didn't send you that and uh, he gave her a week's rent in advance and he said I'm going up central London he said he was living in Shepherd's Bush and he said I'm just going to see can I find myself a job if you don't hear from me for a couple of days don't worry and uh, she said are you sure you're okay and he said no no Fine," he said. There's, "I'm giving you that rent in advance now," he said for the week. And she said the following day, the police knocked on the door and said, "Did he live there?" And um, he had he had killed himself. He jumped under a train at Kensington Station. So, and um, we didn't find out for a year because in those days, not like today. You know, you have DNA, you've all, and the cops here will coincide with British cops, American cops, or whatever. In those days they didn't and they had got his fingerprints on file from a time he had been in Manchester and he had been picked up for I think he was sleeping on a park bench or or whatever and they had taken his fingerprints now he didn't always live like that because I know he lived with an uncle of ours for a while and he did live in this apartment for a while but uh, they kept his body for five weeks because they notified the Irish guards saying that all they had on him was that he was George Moore and the address here and he was born in Dublin. That's all they had. But the Irish guards never followed it up. They didn't follow it up. So as a result, if they hadn't kept him for five weeks, he would have gone in the last in a plot of ten. So he would have been the top coffin. But because they kept him the extra week, he was the first down in the next plot. And nine people went on top of him. So my man was never able to retrieve him or bring him home and that broke her that totally that that broke my mother altogether it finished her off and you see there's a lot of guilt in which there's not now today today there's so much suicide I find it so sad that someone sometimes like talking doesn't help somebody if they're intent on doing it they're going to do it but if you catch somebody at the right time you can't stop them my mother felt such a guilt at the time and at that time it was a terrible shame as well it wasn't just guilt it was also a terrible shame and so she didn't talk about it where she didn't talk about it for the first I would say the first few months because she was absolutely broken hearted and then when she did talk about it she couldn't stop talking about it like she would talk about it over and over and over again and I think actually the day my mom died was the first time I saw her with you could say not a happy face but a peace um, I was sitting one night and I was actually thinking about um, my brother' brother's suicide at the time suicide was starting kind of being made more aware of in Ireland and for, for I, I, th- I tried to think about how he felt on the day he died because apparently on the day he died he was fine leaving the house that morning but he was in a train station that the tracks had broken down. There was a problem with the signals. So you imagine London at 5 5 o'clock on a Friday evening when everyone's coming home from work and you're packed like sardines on a platform and you're told there's no train and the lights are green and they had to wait for this thing to fix up. Anyway, from the story which we later heard from somebody who was there was that he was originally just waiting for the train and then the more packed the station became the more despondent he was getting so he eventually sat down and uh, he put his head into his hands. He sat down um, and the longer the train was delayed, the more depressed he became. He was obviously thinking to himself, oh, what am I doing here? Getting agitated and the platform was getting more packed. Now, among the people on the platform there was a young a young man the same age as him, the same age as my brother and um, he was 24 as well and he had done a lot of his training for Oxford University. He wanted to be an an Anglican priest and he had gone through all the this teaching and he was actually on his way back home to tell his parents he wasn't going to go through with it because he wanted to be a priest of the people he didn't want to be a pulpit basher and they weren't agreeing to that they wanted him to be up in the pulpit and doing mass or whatever they do so he was on his way home to break this news to his parents that after all his years in college he wasn't going to go through with it but we later. Peter like met up with him and he I will continue the story as in what he told us so he said that the more he looked at George he said I was looking at him and I was thinking to myself that young that fella looks very depressed and he said the platform is getting more and more packed and he said I actually was only about three or four people away from him and he said next thing he said the announcement came saying the problem on the line would soon be fixed and the train would be there very soon and he said he stood up and he said there was something about him standing up he said that I didn't quite like I didn't get he said he had this look on his face he said he put his hand to his head and he had, he had this look of total defeat on his face and he said he rolled his trousers up to his knees and he said straight away he said you know the terrible thing is that in London we're so used to this happening that people switch off he said people don't reach out and they don't try to help you he said for all, for all that's in me I could have put my hand out and stopped him that day but he said i have never seen anyone committing suicide and he said I just kept looking at him he said and tried to figure out what he was doing and he said as the train came down the lights went green he said he walked over to the edge of the platform and he said people moved away from him nobody he said put their hands out to stop him he said and he said I could have he said the terrible thing is he said I could have gone through these people and just put my hand out he said on his shoulder he said but he said I was so shocked. He said I didn't know whether I was shocked or whether I was just curious as to what he was going to do. He said and he crossed his two arms over his chest and he said as the train came around he jumped and he said all of a sudden people start giving out saying geez here we are, delayed again we're never going to get home. He said this was the attitude of we say 50% of the people that were there he said some people were shocked 50% it was a total inconvenience and then he said people were shouting is there a doctor because he's still alive does anybody, is there a doctor on the, on the platform? And he said, I just put my hand up, he said, and I just said, no, but I'm a priest. He said, can, can I get down? I'll talk to him. And he said, um, I actually climbed down through the train and he said, the top part of his body was there and he said, his legs had been cut off. He said, but he felt no pain. He said, no, he told my mother, he said, he wasn't in any pain. So he said, I got down and he said, I held his hand and I said to him, what's your name? And he said, Do George and he said I just said I detect a little bit of an Irish accent there and he said I'm from Shepherd's Bush and he said no I think you're Irish he said and he said I do think he said your family needs to know he said you are going to die he said do you know that and he said no he said I'm, sh- I, I'm from Shepherd's Bush he said my name is George and um, he said with that he said well I'm with you and he said I'm going to hold your hand until they get the strain off you and they had to cut strain off him, right they couldn't shunt Trainer, and he said I gave him the last sacraments of a Catholic he said and you know he said when they took him away I knew I could be nothing but a priest he said changed my life he said because I never told my parents what I was thinking and I went on to become an Anglican priest and I became a priest of the streets and a priest of the people I didn't become a pulpit priest I got what I wanted he said and I just reached out to all young men who are there he said but he said I'll never forget him from something bad came something good like it it, it designed his life for him and he went on then to be to to to, uh, working for the Seaman's Mission which reaches out to young men who arrive in England and find they've no one to turn to they're kind of like not like the Samaritans but he's like I wrote a story called One Hour in Time which it was one hour the train was laid for and I actually ended the story on where he jumped and like I ended it there and I, I met Joe Duffy then at a party with a friend of Sheila's and we were talking Joe Duffy was saying his brother had been killed on a motorbike and I was telling him about Georgie's suicide and I said I've written a story and then he said oh God send it into RTE drama department so I said no, I don't really it's like it's private he said but you're, you're you're not actually writing about him you're writing your thoughts on how someone feels when they make that decision to do it so I sent it off and forgot all about it and a few months later I got this call from Julian Finoles, who was a director over the drama department in RTE and uh, he says to me hi he said I, I've i only read your story he said um, it's been lying in the side of my briefcase now for months and he said I was cleaning out the briefcase last night and he said I came across it and I read it and I walked his footsteps and I walked walked his mind and he said I just literally he said walked his whole life through that story so he said was this somebody you knew and I said well my brother committed suicide but I called it one hour in time because I was trying to capture how someone feels and he said oh no no he said it's will you meet me he says for a cup of coffee and uh, I said he said I'd like to discuss using it yeah. the story he said it's it's so brilliant he said I just kept reading it I did go to meet um Julian in Beauties in Grafton Street so we were sitting and he was saying to me like was this about your brother and I said yeah well I kind of you know I never really got over the fact that he did that but I was trying to go through his life and his the reasons why he would have done it but then I told him then about Chris Collinson who was the the young man who went on to become a priest and he said Jesus that's another story he said can you get in touch with him and I said no I said my mum has died now and my mum kept in touch with for years but I wouldn't know how to get in touch with Chris and believe it or not Rebecca this was like as I say I believe in angels I went through all my mom's stuff and I found one postcard from Chris Collinson one with his telephone number on it and his address and I phoned him and I says to him Chris you don't know me I said but I'm Mary Morris daughter I said and I said you were right and he said oh yes yes he said how is she and I said well unfortunately I said she passed away I said, but I've written a story for an Irish tele- company over here. I said, and they're very interested in speaking to you as to your aspect of, they didn't want to end the story just on Georgie's life being over. They wanted to know how your life went on. And he said, well, no, not really. He said, I, I don't feel I did anything. I I don't, I- I'm so happy I was there for him. He said, but I don't feel like I should get any recognition for it. He said, because... To me, he said, I would just feel that was wrong. He said, being recognised, I just did what came naturally to me at the time. And I said, Well, okay, well, listen, thanks for your time. I said, Lovely talking to you. The following day, Julian rings me up. Well, did you get in touch with him? He was really matter of fact. And I said, Yeah, well, Julian, he's not interested. Give me his number, he said. I think it was a Monday then. He rang me and he says to me, Right, he said, Now, are you all ready to travel? And I said, To where? And he says, We're off to London on Wednesday. Right, the two of us. He said, Got an interview. With Chris. Chris Collinson he said we're going to see him we're going to your brother's grave we're going to Holasso he said you're on now so I'll pick you up at half past one on Wednesday so I said yeah okay went to London we went to the graveyard uh, and it was so funny because the graveyard was closed and he climbed over the gate and had to pull me over and I had all the equipment and all and we listened to the planes going over the loneliness of his grave being the fact that it was an unmarked grave and that it was nine people people on top of him. There was actually three prisoners from Her Majesty's Services and um, who couldn't, you, you couldn't remove them. There was like people who couldn't afford a funeral and you couldn't disturb them either and there was actually a baby on top of him that had been found. So it was ironic that Sheila had just had Stephen and my mom had written her last letter to him was saying that, that Sheila had a baby and he was buried with a baby on top of him. So that was the ironic thing and
3: then I went into RTA and we did and Julian, did you? It was just voice recordings with Julian, or was it, or video? No, it was voice recordings, just like what we're doing now, like just really, like yeah. Uh, and then you go as sisters now to George's grave. We
2: found the grave. Uh, Sheila's daughter had gone over beforehand, and she had found it. I never forgot the number. It was CS three one two. There was another. It was there was a digit missing, but I had to tell she Debbie. It was CS three one two, and she found it, and the whole thing had sunk in and like it was he, his was the only cross on it because my mum had put a cross on it with his name on it so his was the only cross so we got a proper headstone made so we put like his whole name on it and united with you know so we've a lovely headstone on it now like we were allowed to do it
3: And do you think that you've had a blessed life? I think I've
2: had as happy a life as we are going to get in this world Yeah, I have good kids my three girls are perhaps they are brilliant to me you know Um my sons are grand yeah I would say so made a few mistakes along the way but
3: I guess I'm still
2: learning yeah in some ways I suppose you could say blessed
3: what would your legacy be what was the yeah, kids tell the grandkids about you that I always loved
2: them I hope they could say that about me I would say the kids the kids would say I was always there for them
3: do you know what the one thing I, I'd say to you about your father but you ended up
2: with him I would go down to my dad's house
3: uh, at weekends
2: and stay down there and look after him and my brother and do all the cleaning in the house then i go back to my own house and it was going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards so finally I just said to my dad look at, I'll buy the house and my dad said no just move in I said no, 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 no I would buy the house because I'll never have anybody saying that I got the
3: house And what was your relationship like with your dad when you moved in, when you were together?
2: I I stepped straight into my man's shoes now he worked right up to the time he died he lived for 10 years after my mum died, he would walk in the door at half past five on the dot and his dinner would be handed up to him he'd turn on the Irish news and everybody scattered and that was the way it was. Was in my house, I used to say King Kong is home. And then I ended up like looking after him for like the 10 years, and I didn't never held it against him because I think, even though you have your memories, yeah, I do think the greatest gift you can give yourself, Rebecca, is to forgive. Yeah, you don't have to forget, mm-hmm. you never have to forget. Yeah, but you should always forgive. Yeah. And I mean, I would sit and I'd have loads of long chats with my dad like afterwards after my mom died and I kind of I felt like he thought I was my mom there when he finally did kind of come to the end when he was dying I would say he loved me but never showed it. like the probably not long before he got sick he actually just got a cold that went on to his lungs and he died within a few months he was working right up to the time he got sick and I think a few months before that I'd had a huge row with him and he'd come in from work and he had said to me he wasn't feeling great and he says just do me a fry for dinner right and I said do you want tomatoes with the fry and he said yeah do me a, do me tomatoes so I done him a lovely fry I done him rash of sausages white pudding and I got the tomato I got was a big one so I cut it all up so when he came in from work he sat down and put his dinner in front of him and he looked at the plate and he said Jesus I didn't ask you for a pound of tomatoes right so I said to him do you know what I I haven't heard the word thanks out of your mouth in all the years that I'm in here. You don't say, thank you to me. I said, I've had enough of you now. I said, I'm not putting a dinner in front of you anymore. I said, you can forget it. I said, say, that is one tomato I said, you've got. I said, and I've put up with all this now. I said, for all the years that I've been with you, no more. That's it. Well, the following morning, you see, my dad's way of doing things was not like saying, oh, I'm sorry. My following morning he put £20. I was washing the dishes in the kitchen and he put twenty pounds down on the counter and he said to me, Go and buy yourself something nice to wear. You see that was his way of saying he was sorry, but he could never say he was sorry, you know. So I'm going to ask everyone probably tell me a terrible thing. <laughs> like my dad was always going out on strike and we we used to when we were living in Church Town, there was a convent in Milltown and when my dad had come out on strike in those days you got no money. So the nuns would always have the you no know, the they used to school lunches then where right. they used to have little bottles of milk and sandwiches so m- on the Fridays my mum would send me and Sheila on their bikes to Middletown Convent and the nuns would give you a parcel How far was that away on the bike? That was probably about probably about half a mile or it could have it, it been a mile And how long how old were you then? I, Jesus we were only about God so we left church and I'd say I was probably about 11 or 12 and Sheila would have been well coming up to it's only a year a few months between us, and the two of us had cycled down on our bike, and we never had lights on the bike, you know, because there was no houses, they were just all big long country roads. But I remember there was this big big graveyard that we had to go by with these two statues of two big angels on the on the edge of the, the, the gate. And I was terrified of this graveyard, especially when it got dark, and we didn't go to the convent till it got dark because you had to wait till all the nuns were finished their prayers. Then you got to the convent and you'd ring the bell and and the door had opened straight out of Dracula. You know (laughs) this? This crunchy door would open, and you just hear the voice saying, "Come in, <laughs> you know, come in." The man with the black cloak was standing there with the teeth hanging out in the fangs. So we'd walk in and stand there. And next thing, the heading on and come down and hand us this parcel. And the only good thing about the parcel was, for some reason, there was always little bars of Cadbury's chocolate in it. But anyway, this night we were on our way home, and I, me and Sheila, were cycling like the clappers, and we had our little parcels tied to the front of our bikes, and just as we got to the graveyard didn't the chain on my bike break right and I went flying off it so I'm trying to hold on to Sheila's bike and I'm trying to put the chain back on to my bike and I'm begging her please don't go please don't go because I'm looking at this graveyard and I'm seeing these two big statues staring at me and I thought oh Jesus it's going to be night The living dead they're all going to start crawling out of the graves right and Sheila said no I promise you and I said promise me now promise me on your life Life, you won't cycle off, please, because I had to let go of the bike to put on the chain. And she said, "No, no, I promise you, I promise you, I won't." The minute I let go of the bike, she went cycling off. Right, so I'm stuck at this graveyard with the chain off the bike, and I'm trying to put it on. And I start screaming, and I screamed the whole mile home <laughs> down a <the> country lane. <laughs> And I didn't I didn't know if there was bats coming behind me. Dracula was coming behind me. Yeah. I didn't know, but the whole way home I screamed. And I couldn't talk the next morning. I screamed that much. And Sheila was in the house and she was home and she was in fits laughing. And my mum said that was a terrible thing to do. I found a coin once and it looked like a half crown. I don't know if you you probably you won't remember half crown. Like it was two and six. So I found this coin and I said, Great. I used to buy my friends because I always wanted to everyone to love me so I had a girl next door and I think about three other girls who lived in the area and I said come on tree is all to ice cream wafers so we went into this little shop it was called the Red Hut and I ordered five wafers and it was great so we all stand there we're away from we all took a bite out of it and next thing your man's looking at this coin and he said what's this and I said it's it's two and six and he said no it's not he said that's a coin that's no good and I went hmm Can we give our ice cream back? And he said, no, you can't. He said, you've all bitten it. I'll put it on your mother's bill. Oh, I'll tell you, Rebecca, did I get hiding? Oh, my God, because my mum went on the Friday and she said, I can't believe she said
3: you treated all your friends to ice cream. I had the legs walloped off me. And on that note, as I said to you, Peggy, very, very fond of you. You're a lady. Thank you very much for your time today. Um... Thank you, Rebecca. And it's been lovely speaking to you. And good luck. Hope somebody
2: else enjoys well.